It's December 10, 2003, a night of celebration for one family in Sugarland, Texas. At a seafood restaurant in the city, the Whitakers are in a joyous mood. 23-year-old Bart has just passed his finals and graduated from college. To celebrate, his parents organize a meal at their son's favorite spot. As Bart finishes his dessert, his father, Kent, grabs a gift-wrapped box from under the table. Bart rips the paper off and pulls out a gold Rolex watch, the one he's had his eye on for some time. It's the perfect end to a wonderful evening. Once the check is paid, the family makes their way to the car and drives the short distance home. When they pull up to the curb, 19-year-old Kevin gets out and walks up the path, followed closely by his mom, Trisha. Patting his pockets, Bart realizes that he's dropped his phone in the car and doubles back to grab it. Kent waits for him, unaware of the chaos that's about to ensue. Kevin unlocks the door and steps inside. An ear-splitting bang cuts through the stillness of the night and a flash of light spills through the open doorway. Trisha takes a couple steps forward to see what's going on. She utters a quiet, oh no, before another deafening crack pierces the silence, accompanied by a second blaze of light. Trisha slumps in the doorway, pain etched on her face. Surprised by the sudden commotion, Kent rushes up the path. He sees his wife laying on the stoop, crimson blooming across her blouse. At first, he thinks it's some sort of joke, organized by his youngest son and one of his friends, and that the red spreading across his wife's chest is nothing more than the liquid contents of a paintball pellet. But as he looks inside the house, he quickly recognizes that what's happening is all too real. Time seems to stand still as he takes in every detail. His youngest son is lying on the floor of the hall, blood spreading across the tiles from a wound in his chest. Standing a couple of feet away, beside his dying son, is a man dressed all in black. The barrel of the gun he's holding is aimed at the doorway. Kent manages to swivel his body just before the trigger is pulled. This tiny movement almost certainly saves his life. Instead of entering his chest, the bullet penetrates his upper arm, shattering the humerus bone. Kent is thrown backwards, landing on the porch. Breathing heavily, he tries to push himself up, but pain floods his body. Before he can do anything, the gunman starts to run towards the back of the house. Kent begins to black out as Bart vaults over him. He bravely gives chase, pursuing the shooter into the kitchen. Another explosive bang rips through the house and Bart falls to the tiled floor, squeezing his arm where the bullet has just ripped through his flesh. He closes his eyes and grits his teeth against the searing pain as the gunman flees through the back door. Once his breathing steadies, Bart manages to pull out his phone and call 911. It doesn't take long for the first responders to arrive. Among them 
is Detective Marshall Slot, the man who will lead the investigation. He's in his early 30s and soft-spoken, with dark hair cropped close to his scalp and a clean-shaven face. Sugarland is a quiet town, filled with honest, law-abiding citizens. When the report first came through that four shots had been fired in a suburban neighborhood, Slot thought someone at the station was playing a joke. But when he arrives at the gruesome scene at the Whitaker home, he quickly realizes just how real the situation is. His thoughts turn to the preservation of life, to the gunman who is still at large, and to what possible motive someone could have to gun down this well-liked family in cold blood. My name is Mark Dodson, and welcome to Detectives Don't Sleep. Each week, we'll shadow the world's most remarkable sleuths, real detectives who worked extraordinary cases. When four gunshots ring out in the suburban city of Sugarland, Texas, killing two members of the Whitaker family and badly injuring two more, the news is met with disbelief in the community. Detective Marshall Slot takes the case. At first, people think that it's simply a robbery gone wrong, but there are details that just don't add up. And before long, Slot finds himself tangled up in one of the most bizarre and challenging investigations he'll ever face. From Noiser, this is a family affair. And this is Detectives Don't Sleep. The quiet night is soon disturbed by the low drone of rotor blades thundering above. Two helicopters emerge from the clouds and land amongst the various emergency vehicles outside the Whitaker house. Paramedics rush inside and assess the situation. They examine Kevin, but cannot find a pulse. The youngest Whitaker is pronounced dead at the scene. Trisha and Kent are strapped to stretchers and airlifted to Houston Medical Center. Bart arrives soon after by ambulance. His and Kent's wounds are easily treatable and don't pose any significant threat. But sadly, the same can't be said for Trisha. Doctors work hard to stabilize her, but unfortunately, her injuries are too severe. She's pronounced dead later that night. The tragedy in Sugarland has now wiped out half of the Whitaker family. At the house, Detective Slot makes his way methodically through the rooms, trying to establish a motive. In the bedrooms, the drawers and the wardrobe doors have been opened. At first, Slot thinks that the Whitakers might have walked in on a robbery, but on closer inspection, he changes his mind. It looks a bit, well, staged. All the drawers have been pulled out about three inches. None of the contents have been disturbed, and there are high-priced pieces of jewelry in plain sight, as well as computers and other expensive electronic devices. 
If the man behind the trigger was a robber, he hasn't taken much, if anything at all. In Kevin's bedroom, Slot kneels down beside a gun safe. The door of the safe has been prized open and is now empty. There are deep gouges in the metal, which indicate that it's been forced open, presumably with a crowbar or something like that. There are also blue smears, which suggest that the tool used to open the safe was painted recently. It's a little clue that might just help somewhere down the line. The murder weapon is found in the kitchen, a 9mm Glock. A quick check of the serial number reveals that the gun belonged to none other than Kevin Whitaker. Now, this begs a couple of questions. Did the intruder come unarmed, knowing that he could steal a handgun once he was inside? And if so, does that mean one of Kevin's friends is behind the attack? Is the whole thing an inside job that went wrong? Was Kevin supposed to live? Before the police can make further inroads with the weapon, Slot's radio goes off. There's been another armed robbery just a couple of miles away, but the suspect has already fled. At Sugarland Police Station, officers run to their cars and make their way to the scene, eager to catch the criminal before he can go to ground. Maybe the case will be sewn up pretty quickly. After all, what are the chances of two armed attacks in one night in this sleepy little corner of Texas? Police cars speed down the highway, their blue and red lights bouncing off the asphalt. Despite repeated attempts, the armed robber has refused to stop. Instead, he's dodging in and out of traffic, his foot pressed hard on the accelerator, trying to put as much distance between the police and himself as possible. Suddenly, the car skids to the right, just about making the off-ramp, and winds its way into the suburbs. Police aren't fooled by the robber's sudden detour and continue to tail him, closing the gap. The car comes to a stop in front of an apartment complex and a man wearing all black emerges. He runs up the stairs and enters one of the upstairs apartments. It's a big mistake. In minutes, the place is surrounded by cops and any escape route is cut off. As officers discuss how best to enter the house and take the robber captive, there's a bright flash of light from behind the curtains, followed instantaneously by a loud gunshot. When officers rush upstairs, they find that the robber has turned the gun on himself. The man is quickly unmasked and identified as Lathan Jackson. He'd been in prison until a couple of months ago for crimes involving drugs. Could he have targeted the Whitakers because he knew they were rich? I'm historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noise's newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home. I've spent my life investigating the hidden history of everyday objects. The vacuum cleaner in your cupboard, sleek and compact today, but when it was invented, it was literally powered by horses and took four to six people to operate. The minty fresh toothpaste by a sink. Well, if you lived in ancient Greece, you'd be washing your teeth with ground up bones and oyster shells. 
double glazed windows. We owe those to a French king's odd fascination with oranges. The Curious History of Your Home explores the extraordinary in the ordinary. Listen to The Curious History of Your Home each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From award-winning podcasters Noiser, The Curious History of Your Home. Detective Slot theorizes that Jackson ended his own life because he knew homicide carried a more severe penalty than what he'd been sentenced to before, and that he realized just how much trouble he was in. To test the theory, Detective Slot asks for a member from the canine unit to be brought to the Whitaker house. A sample of Jackson's clothing is held to the bloodhound's nose. It sniffs the drawers in the bedroom and the handle of the 9mm Glock, but the dog appears uninterested it quickly becomes clear that Lathan Jackson's scent is not present at the Whitaker crime scene. It's a blow to the investigators who thought the crime might have been solved in record time. But it also rules one perpetrator out, which means Slot and his team can now focus on finding the right one. Sugarland police visit Ken and Bart Whitaker in the hospital both are confined to their beds. They need minor surgery, but doctors give Slot and his partner, Billy Baugh, the go-ahead to interview him. Kent tells them that just before he was shot, he managed to get a good look at the intruder. He's pretty certain that the assailant was of average build, around 5 feet 11 inches tall, and that he was wearing a black ski mask. He believes that through the eye holes of the balaclava, he saw the shooter had white skin. Bart's recollection is almost identical, but differs on one key point. He's convinced that the shooter had black skin, though he can't be 100% sure. After all, the whole terrible event only lasted seconds. At the Whitaker home, investigators continue to comb through the crime scene, hunting for a piece of evidence that'll help to narrow down the identity of the killer. However, the first big break in the case comes from an unexpected source. On December 12th, just two days after the shootings, police receive a phone call from a local journalist called Eric Hansen. Hansen has been attempting to get a story about the Whitaker killings together for the newspaper he works for. While trying to get some background for the piece, he called San Houston State University. His intention was to find out which course Bart Whitaker was graduating from, just to give the story a little bit of color. But to his surprise, he was told that Bart wasn't even close to graduating. And in fact, he hadn't attended a class in a while. It was actually on academic probation. If that's the case, the big question is, why did the family spend the evening at a seafood restaurant, lavishing Bart with gifts and celebrating his graduation? Armed with this shocking development, police travel to the hospital again to confront Bart. The shock at his lie being uncovered is obvious in his eyes. When questioned, he claims 
that his family had very high expectations of him. He'd been busy at his job, which got in the way of his studies and his grades started to slip. But he didn't want to let his parents down. So he told them that he was graduating. When questioned about the missing tuition money, he tells the cops that he used it to have a good time. So you see, Bart may have initially been lying to spare his parents' feelings, but it appears that his lie snowballed out of control. And that's the thing about lies. They often take on a life of their own. And before you know it, you're trapped with no escape. Did Bart think the only way out was to get rid of his family altogether? It's time for Detective Slot to find out. In the days following his surgery, Bart certainly isn't acting like a suspect. Oh sure, he's ashamed that he was caught lying, but he was willing to answer any questions the police had for him. When friends visit him in his hospital room, he tells them confidently that he's doing all he can to help the police find their man. And he is. He even offers to assist the police with the reconstruction of the crime. Something that can't be easy for him, right? Having to act out the moments leading up to the fatal shootings of two family members. However difficult it might be for Bart to retrace his steps, it's an offer Detective Slot happily accepts. So, when Bart's released from the hospital, the two men visit the Whitaker household. Bart walks up the path with his arm in a sling. His face is coated in stubble, and his hair is wild and unkempt. He's also much thinner than he was a week ago. He tries to explain his version of events to the detective. He approaches the front door and shows Slot the route he took when he chased the gunman into the kitchen. The reconstruction should help put Slot's mind at rest that Bart wasn't involved. But it actually has the opposite effect. You see, Bart can't get his story straight. When Detective Slot asks him a question, his answers are vague. He can't be sure of certain details and agrees with the detective's suggestion before backtracking and claiming it could have happened how Slot is describing. But it might have been slightly different too. I mean, sure, his hazy recollections of the night could be down to shock or trauma but it could also be him trying to dupe the police. After all, if he was willing to lie to his parents, he'd probably lie to the police too. Detective Slot leaves the scene, considering the unthinkable, that Bart Whitaker is behind the shootings that injured his father and ended the lives of his mother and brother. There's not enough conclusive evidence to prove this theory, but one thing is for certain. Bart Whitaker did not pull the trigger. If he was involved, it was in an organizational role. So who was it, waiting in the shadows of the Whitakers' home on that fateful night? It's just before midnight on December 15th. Detective Slot is at home, getting ready for bed when his pager beeps. A message on the screen tells him someone is at the station asking to talk to him. With thoughts of his cozy bed fading fast, Slot gets himself ready and heads for the car. 
Half an hour later, he pulls into the parking lot of the police station. There are a couple of streetlights near the entrance, but otherwise, the lot is cast in darkness. Slot pulls into a space beside another car, and a man quickly climbs out. He walks to the passenger side of Slot's car and gets in. The stranger is clean-shaven, with dark hair parted to the side. He introduces himself as Adam Hip, an old friend of Bart Whitaker. After seeing the devastating news about the shootings, he felt compelled to come forward. He thinks he knows what happened. You see, it was two years ago. Bart approached Hip with a proposition. He wanted Hip to kill his family, and he had the whole thing planned out. Bart would take the family out for the night, allowing Hip time to sneak into the house. When the family returned, Hip was to wait in the hallway by the foot of the stairs and open fire the second the door opened. To fool the police and direct suspicion away from an inside job, Bart even told his friend to shoot him in the arm. Sounds eerily similar to what actually happened, right? During Detective Slot and Adam Hip's three-hour talk in the parking lot, the informant even draws a plan of the Whitaker house with details only someone with inside knowledge could know. Stranger still, the plot was actually uncovered not long after Hip agreed to it. Bart's parents were made aware of it, and when they questioned their son, he simply passed it off as a big misunderstanding. Just a bit of drunken rambling, and unbelievably, his parents bought the story and seemingly forgot about it. The next day, Detective Slot checks Hip out, just to make sure he wasn't involved this time around. But his alibi is tight. Hip is a bank teller in Dallas, and he was working late on the night of the murders. Okay, now, Hip may not have been involved this time, but it does get Slot thinking. If Bart has approached his friends with assassination plots in the past, what's to say he hasn't tried the same thing again? So, Slot begins methodically digging into Bart's friends, co-workers, and neighbors. It's time-consuming and could lead nowhere, but Slot believes it'll pay off. And after countless hours of investigation, he uncovers two men who may be of interest. Detective Slot takes a trip to the city of Montgomery, just over 60 miles away from Sugarland. He pulls off the road and turns into the vast grounds of the Bentwater Yacht and Country Club. It's an impressive sight. The cream buildings with their enormous windows look out over rolling, manicured lawns. An outside terrace with comfortable seating offers incredible views of the sprawling lake that surrounds the place. But Slot isn't here for a Long Island iced tea or a game of tennis. No, he's here to talk to two of Bart's companions. You see, this is where Bart works. So do two men called Chris Brashear and Stephen Champagne. Slot has managed to uncover that the three men are more than just employees who spend the occasional shift in each other's company. Bart and Brashear 
are housemates in the nearby town of Willis, and Champagne lives just a couple of doors away. When Detective Slot approaches the men, they deny any wrongdoing. In fact, they're more than willing to be interviewed and agree to give clothing samples to assist with another bloodhound search of the Whitaker home. Not long after, the sniffer dogs are unleashed once more. A handler holds a piece of Chris Brashear's clothing to the bloodhound's nose and gives it time to become familiar with the man's scent. Another dog is undergoing the same process with an item of Stephen Champagne's clothing. And then the dogs set off on their mission. When presented with some items from the house, the one tasked with finding Champagne's scent remains quiet. But it's a different story with the other dog. It begins barking frantically. Brashear's scent is found on the bedroom drawers, on the gun safe, and most damning of all, the handle of the 9mm Glock used to kill members of the Whitaker family. When Detective Slot presents the evidence to Brashear in an interview room in Sugarland, he protests. He promises that he had nothing to do with the killings, but the look of panic and horror on his face suggests otherwise. Slot knows he's got the gunman, but it's only a part of the puzzle. The case against Bart is growing. Now he needs concrete evidence in order to tie him down. Luckily, Slot has a plan. It's April 2004, four months since the shootings. Adam Hip and Detective Slot have just reached a deal. Hip has agreed to assist with the investigation, and Slot will see to it that no charges are brought against him for his part in the 2001 assassination plot. Hip sits by a phone, typing in Bart Whitaker's number. The handset's been tapped by the police, who'll be able to listen in too and recover every single word Bart says. When the phone starts ringing, the room goes silent. And then, Bart answers. Hip tells Bart that the police have contacted him and are asking questions about his family's murders. Bart urges Hip to stay silent, to keep his name out of any interview he's asked to do. To sweeten the deal, Bart offers to pay Hip $20,000 and hangs up. The phone call may have been short, but Slot's got what he needed. An offer of hush money from Bart and a recording of the call that can be passed on to prosecutors when the time comes. A couple of weeks later, a check for $240 arrives at a post box in Dallas that's been set up specifically for this payment. When Hip brings the envelope to the police, they're able to lift Bart's fingerprints. And they also find a little touch of Bart's dark humor, or maybe arrogance is the right word. You see, he has signed the return address section with the name K. Soze. It's a nod to the film, The Usual Suspects, which centers around a police investigation and a criminal mastermind. It's a ballsy move, and one that backfires immediately. 
Slot reckons that he has enough evidence to formally charge Bart Whitaker with the murder of his mother and brother and the attempted murder of his father. He has Hip's parking lot confession and the diagram of the Whitaker home, the recorded phone call where Bart promised to pay Hip off for his silence, as well as the hush money check, more than enough to convince a judge and jury of his guilt. Slot and his fellow officers continue to build the case against Bart Whitaker. They have a lot of evidence already, but they want to make sure that the case is beyond reasonable doubt before approaching the DA. But in late June 2004, there's some bad news. The police receive a call telling them that a Chevy Yukon has been abandoned outside an apartment block in southwest Houston same type of car that Bart drives. When Slot pulls into the lot, he recognizes the car instantly as Bart's. The key is in the ignition, and the engine is still running. There's no sign of a struggle. Slot phones Kent and delivers the news of the abandoned car. According to Kent, Bart told him the night before that he was going to a club. It feels like a cover story and Slot quickly comes to the conclusion that Bart has fled. He is angry that they've let Bart get away, but this little setback only pours fuel on the fire. Bart Whitaker will crawl out of the woodwork eventually. Until then, Slot fixes his attention on another key player in the murder case. In the months that follow, Slot turns up the heat on Bart's friend, Stephen Champagne. Wiretaps are placed on his and Chris Brashear's phones, though they never contact each other or Bart. Slot cruises by the country club every now and then, just to let Champagne know that the police haven't forgotten about him. In the end, the relentless pressure is just too much. On August 28, 2005, more than a year and a half after the shootings, Champagne asked Slot to meet him at a coffee shop in nearby Conroe. They sit at a table, and Champagne starts nervously feeling his way into the story that he's come to tell. He tells the detective that Bart approached him to be the gunman, but Champagne refused. But Bart wasn't going to give up that easily. According to Champagne, Bart told him he knew too much to walk away and was involved in the plan already. Afraid of Bart's threats, Champagne agreed to be the getaway driver in an attempt to play as small a part as possible in the scheme. By now, it's obvious who the trigger man was, but Slot asks Champagne to say it for the record. And just as Slot expected, the man who actually shot and killed Kevin and Tricia Whitaker was Chris Brashear. He claims that Bart offered him and Chris a huge amount of money for their part in the killings, a share of the $1.5 million windfall Bart was due to inherit. To help corroborate the story, he directs Slot to Lake Conroe, a body of water about an hour north of where the crime was committed. He tells the detective that they threw a bag of incriminating evidence over the bridge and into the water below. Finding the bag isn't going to be an easy task. You see, 
Lake Conroe is enormous at well over 20,000 acres. Its shoreline totals 157 miles. It'd be like finding a needle in a haystack and 20 months have passed since the bag entered the water. If police divers do manage to find the bag, and that's a big if, the items inside would surely be stripped of anything useful like DNA. Slot recognizes the challenge ahead, but he knows that if he can find that bag, securing the convictions becomes a hell of a lot easier. The next day, a white boat bobs on the surface of Lake Conroe. Divers have been in and out of the water all day. So far, they've all been unsuccessful in locating the bag. The captain starts the engine once more, maneuvering the boat to a spot a little further from the bridge. When he's in place, a different diver checks his apparatus before launching himself backwards into the water. Another tense wait begins. Cars zoom across the bridge above them and birds squawk in the trees that line the shore. But below, all is silent. Suddenly, some bubbles rise from the depths and break onto the surface. Then, the diver appears with something grasped tightly in his fist. A bag. A bag that looks as though it's been submerged for quite some time. It's rushed to the lab, where a forensic team carefully examines it. Inside is a treasure trove of evidence. There's a chisel. The peeling blue paint on its point matches the paint that rubbed off on the gun safe. There's ammunition, the same type of bullets that were used to kill members of the Whitaker family. There are two waterlogged cell phones and a half-empty bottle of water. Remarkably, when the bottle is swabbed, Brashear's DNA is found inside the lid. The contents of the bag are enough to convict Chris Brashear and Stephen Champagne of capital murder, which leaves just one man, Bart Whitaker. So far, it seems as though he simply disappeared into the ether. In desperation, the police put up a reward of $10,000 for information that may lead to Bart's arrest. And it doesn't take long for the phone to ring. It's September 14th, 2005. Detective Slot is at his desk with the police phone handset pressed against his ear. On the other end of the line is a man called Rudy Rios. He's a friend of Bart's from when the two worked together at a restaurant in Houston. Rios knows where Bart is, but before he can give out that information, he wants assurance that he'll get paid. Slot promises that if the information leads to Bart's capture, the 10K will be his. With a verbal contract in place, Rios tells Slot everything. Bart came to him and told him law enforcement were putting pressure on him in the aftermath of his family's killings. Rios told him he could sneak him across the border into Mexico, where he could stay with his family. And so, for the sum of three grand, 
Rios sold Bart his identity and drove him to the small town of Seralvo, about 40 miles from the Texas border. It was only when the real Rudy Rios saw what Bart was being accused of that he felt he should come forward. Although he did manage to hold his tongue until the reward money was announced. But that's probably just a coincidence. And so, with Bart's location in hand, a sting is put in place for his capture. On September 22, 2005, Bart strolls towards a restaurant in Monterey. He's got a job interview, or so he thinks. When he opens the door and steps inside, it's not an interview panel or the head chef waiting to greet him. It's the Mexican cops who arrest him on the spot. Perhaps knowing that his time on the run is up, Bart doesn't put up a fight. He lets them handcuff him and lead him to the waiting van. Later that day, he's transported to the U.S. border, where Detective Slot is waiting. Bart looks up at the detective for a moment, and then his eyes fall to the floor. His expression shows that he knows just how much trouble he's in. On December 2005, the district attorney announces that the state will be seeking the death penalty for Bart Whitaker. The trial starts 15 months later, in March 2007. The evidence against Bart is so overwhelming, so much so, that his lawyer doesn't even try and claim that his client is innocent. Instead, he uses his time in the courtroom to argue against the death penalty. When the time comes, the jury takes 10 hours to reach their judgment. Bart is found guilty of capital murder and is sentenced to death. The date of his execution is set, November 22, 2008. The news is devastating for Bart's father. Kent immediately launches a series of appeals to spare his son's life, but each one is knocked back. And finally, a decade later, all of his options run out. On February 22, 2018, Kent visits his son in prison. They touch hands through the gap in the glass panel and say their tearful final goodbyes. Later that afternoon, Bart eats his last meal and prepares to be strapped to the gurney. And then a miracle happens. With 45 minutes to go, Texas Governor Greg Abbott makes a fateful decision. After hearing a last-ditch plea from Kent, he commutes Bart's death penalty to life in prison. The final twist is a fitting one for such a warped tale. Bart's story ends within the walls of the William G. McConnell unit in Beeville, Texas, where he will serve a life sentence without an opportunity to appeal for parole. Next time on Detectives Don't Sleep, we're in Los Angeles in the 1980s. The body of a young woman is found in a parking lot. The first mystery detectives must solve is her identity. Leading the case is veteran homicide detective John St. John, the man they call Jigsaw John, because of his ability to piece together a case 
when a teenage girl goes missing a week later, St. John fears the worst. There's a serial killer at large. St. John's suspicions focus on one man, a sleazebag photographer called Bill Bradford. But does the seasoned detective have anything more than just his hunches to go on? Find out in Jigsaw John, the next episode of Detectives Don't Sleep.